This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, we've got a return guest to our show. His name is Chad Robichaud. He is a retired Force Recon Marine. He's also an Afghanistan combat veteran. And in addition to that, he's a pro MMA champion and a fourth-degree Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. He just got his fourth degree this year. Also, he's a best-selling author, speaker. He's the host of The Robo Show. That's his podcast. He's the founder of the Mighty Oaks Foundation. That is a foundation that helps out uh, military veterans that have PTSD or any other mental issues. They do some great things. But we basically don't talk about any of that in this show. We spend the overwhelming amount of our time talking about Save Our Allies, or SOA. So this organization, they saw what happened in Afghanistan last year, and as opposed to doing what most of us did, most of us civilians or even people that are in NGOs or even with the federal government, and they're just lamenting like, oh, that really stinks. How how terrible is this? They decide to create an organization. I say they, and he'll talk about some of the, the folks that he did this with, but Tim Kennedy, Sarah Verardo and some other people that maybe can't be mentioned, they decide they were going to create an organization and go out there and save these people. That they weren't just going to lament what was happening or wait on the federal government to, to do some things. They were going to go get our allies, the, these American citizens, green card holders, or, or people that, that have a connection to the United States, get them out of there and get them to safety. And I jotted it down because I wasn't sure about the number. But during the interview, he said they saved 12,000 of our allies in 10 days. In 10 days, him and his team saved 12,000 people, people that would have been sold into sex slavery or, or shot in the street or beheaded. You know, they're not really doing public executions anymore because they're trying to seem like the Taliban has moderated or things like that. But we get into all of that in this interview. We certainly spend a lot of our time talking about Afghanistan. But then as soon as everything popped off in Ukraine, Save Our Allies was there. SOA was on the ground, helping people, helping with medevacs, helping, you know, move people to safety, you know, getting people to where they, they could be taken care of. But guys, this isn't just like a, a slobbering love affair on the stuff that they did. I did push back and challenge in some areas. It was a very positive interview overall, but I did ask about, Hey, how do we know that everybody that we quote unquote saved from Afghanistan came over here and they're not just a bad guy? You know, maybe we created a bunch of sleeper cells here in the United States by bringing all these people over here. You know, what about that? How do how do we vet these people? He goes into a lot of detail with that. Also with Ukraine, it's an incredibly corrupt government. We know that. So is all this money that's going through the United States federal government going over to them, your tax dollars? How can we guarantee that that's going to actually buy bullets and ammunition and missiles for these folks? And it isn't just going to line the pockets of people in government over there. We get into all of that. Guys, this was such a good conversation because one thing for a lot of us, we try to build our opinions based on our favorite political commentators' opinions. You know, whether you're on the right or the left, you know, you're going through and looking at it through their lens. And so you're looking at something like what happened in Afghanistan, Ukraine through their lens and not your own lens. And the reason is, is because you got a job, you got kids, you got things to do, you got soccer practice, you got, you know, baseball practice, you got all these things. You don't have time to sit there and break down exactly what's happening. And then even if you did have the time, how are you going to get the right information? How do you know the stuff that you're listening to and that you're hearing is the right information for you is accurate? You don't know that. Well, he and his team are on the ground in both of these areas. So you're going to get a peek behind the curtain as to what's going on right now in Afghanistan and the Ukraine that you're not going to be getting from Fox News or MSNBC or the New York Times or even the Daily Wire. There's going to be a lot of things that you're hearing in this that you will have not heard before. And guys, I'm not going to keep them from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Chad Robichaud, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. We're glad to have you back. I mean, in the last podcast, we talked a lot about your personal history, kind of how you got into MMA, jujitsu, a lot of stuff you've done with Mighty Oaks Foundation. And, and guys, you can find that in one of our old episodes. But a lot has changed in the world since the last time you came on this podcast. I think you came on pre-pandemic, if uh, my memory serves me. And so, like, literally nothing is is the same. But we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the stuff that you're doing now, and we'll get into the organization and all that here in a second. But uh, I always like to ask guys that served overseas in, in a combat role, which you did in Afghanistan, kind of what your thoughts were whenever uh, Afghanistan fell, whenever we decided that we were going to pull our troops and pull our presence out of Afghanistan. We'll get in, in, in a second to kind of what you did to counteract some of the evils that were being done. But just simply as a veteran, as an individual veteran, Chad Robichaud, when you saw that we were pulling out and you saw what was happening on the ground, what was your reaction? Well, I mean, I, I guess the, the first word that comes to my, my mind is disgusted. 
Uh, I mean, uh, I have a lot invested in Afghanistan. I did eight deployments there. My son did a deployment there. I buried 15 friends uh, that went to Afghanistan. So I have a lot invested. And not only that from my side as a a service member, but as someone who has became very close to Afghans Mm -hmm. and Afghan culture and Afghan friends, uh, knowing what would happen to them. Uh, I've been around the military a long time almost 30 years now, I understand what decisions like the decision was made has on the, not only the United States and on national security, but on the world, on the people of Afghanistan, just based on the knowledge I have, it was just immediately disgusting to me because I knew, I knew it was not only the wrong decision, but I knew the, uh, the catastrophic, uh, effects that that decision would have. And uh, unfortunately I didn't want to be right, but unfortunately uh, I was right. And we're seeing it continue to unfold now. Right. Well, I've talked to a lot of veterans on this show specifically, and, and to be honest with you, Chad, none of them used that word. None of them used the word disgusting. It was surprising and disappointing and, and horrible and all that. I guess, give me a little bit more on the disgusting side of it, because it, was it because you had some, some, I guess, middle knowledge or further knowledge of what this was exactly going to lead to? Was it because of, because I think that is a, an appropriate word to describe the leadership, if you can even call it that, from the White House and on down the leadership in our military to allow something like this to happen. It almost seems like they had to have some other plan. You know what I mean? So exactly. Why, dis- why disgust? That that's the that's where the word disgust comes from because yeah. it is it's to me it's it wasn't a decision made for the best interest of America and the world. And uh, when decisions are made in the United and look, I'll, I'll prep this with this. I didn't vote for Joe Biden. I never would vote for Joe Biden, but that has nothing to do with that. It, it didn't matter who was in the White House. If Donald Trump was in the White House and made the same decision, my re, my reaction would be of disgust. This this decision was made uh, outside of the best interests of America, the, the our national security, and the and the sanctity and safety of the free world. And uh, and what were those motivation motivating factors for those decisions? I have my suspicions. Um, but no one will really know because the intelligence community recommended against it. The joint chiefs recommended against it. Everyone recommended against the decision to pull out from Afghanistan the way we did. And, uh, and the white house chose to do it anyway, knowing the repercussions would be, uh, again, the, uh, impact on our national security, the horrific, uh, effects on the Afghan people. I mean, you're talking 40 million people, 20 million women immediately, sex slaves, uh, and, and all of our allies to be abandoned, left there, murdered. They're still being murdered right now. Americans to be abandoned and left there. Uh, yeah, it's, it's disgusting. We don't leave Americans behind. We don't do this to our allies, and we don't, uh, we don't turn over uh, innocent people who can't defend themselves to a terrorist organization. Right. Uh, and then turn over the world's most strategic location, which is Bagram Air Force Base, mm-hmm. surrounded by Iraq, Iran, Russia, China. You don't turn that over uh, and just give that away for no reason. And there was no reason to do it. It's, it was disgusting. Well, we'll get into how you and some of your close friends decided to respond to that here in a second. But I, I do want to pry a little bit more into some of your suspicions um, as to why we would do this, because it didn't seem like a strategic move from the outside, but but I'm not privy to all the information that even you're privy to, much less the people in the White House. Yeah. One of the more interesting takes I've heard was, I believe it was Dakota Meyer, a mutual friend of ours as well, that was on Joe Rogan Experience, and he said, well, why would they leave all, all the, you know, aircraft and, and Humvees yeah. and weaponry and all that behind? Well, it's so that these contractors can continue making those things and get us ready to go for the next war, which will will inevitably happen because of the power vacuum that's been created there. That's being, you know, overcame by China and Russia and that they're kind of filling the gap. I feel that's a little bit conspiracy theory ish, but if the, if the last two years have taught us anything, Chad, it's only a conspiracy theory until we get the evidence that says it's true. So if you were, and, and I know some of that's private and you don't, you don't have to just go full force on te- as to why you really think, but in your, in your wildest imagination, if you were to actually try to peg why they did this move, why they gave up Bagram, like help me understand because it still keeps me up at night. Yeah. Well, most conspiracy theorists uh, at this point are called prophets. Now, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the way, the way things we see, we see things unfold. Uh, there's plenty of things I was told I was cons- had conspiracies about, including things in Afghanistan that turned out to be uh, very true and validated. Now, uh, for me, the, the big reason that that President Biden gave was that we were in a 20 year war. It was an endless war and we had to get our troops out. No more American lives would be lost. 
uh, but the, and, and I think it was said so much that people actually started believing that we had to leave. Maybe we just need to leave a different way, a right way. There was a better way to leave. That's not true at all. We weren't supposed to leave. We should not have left. We weren't in a 20 year war. It wasn't an endless war. In fact, we were, we were had anywhere from 2,500 to 4,000 troops there at a time. Uh, in Japan, since world war two, we have 80,000 troops and in mm-hmm. Germany, we have 40,000 troops and, in uh, South Korea, we have like 35,000 troops. These are rough numbers. But we've been there since World War II, so why leave with only 2,500 troops there or 4,000 troops there? We have done what should be done in a situation like this. We had an international presence. The entire world was participating in this international effort to keep terrorism at bay in Afghanistan by using Bagram Air Force Base. One of the things that President Trump had proposed with his withdrawal was to hand the Bagram Air Force Base over to the international community. Uh, we were going to continue to support and advise uh, the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police to keep the Taliban at bay. Now, I don't agree with President Trump's negotiation with the Taliban. I don't think any, any president should have done that. But nonetheless, they did. And uh, in, in doing that, we uh, in, in doing that, negotiating with the Taliban and the, the White House, the present White House continuing to do that, they chose to to leave and they use the excuse of, uh, of not keeping it in this, in this war. The truth is the only person that had to gain from this, you can't really, uh, you can't really gather someone's attention. So you look at what someone had to gain. The only people that had gain in this is, uh, really two, two nations. Uh, I mean, you could say three, you could say Russia, but mainly China and Iran, uh, China wanted the, the mineral rights to the Hindu Kush mountains for lithium rights. Uh, and they wanted it for forever. Um, people were calling me a conspiracy theorist for saying that we would give up Afghanistan so China could get those uh, lithium mineral rights from the Hindu Kush mountains. Uh, but the day we left and the very next day, uh, those mineral rights were given to China by the Taliban, uh, billions of dollars worth of, uh, worth of lithium. Uh, in addition, the only thing that sits between China who needs oil and Iran's sanctioned oil is Afghanistan and the United States military. The United States military had to move out of the way for China and Iran's uh, to be able to trade oil. Uh, and, and additionally, third and probably most importantly, the most strategic place on the globe in today's present world is Bagram Air Force Base. It sits between Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China. And it's very, uh, for us to give it up, uh, the United States to give it up without giving it to the international community is treasonous to the world. I mean, those are big words, but it is. I mean, why did we not consult with the rest of the world with Germany, Britain, France, to say we're going to give this base up. The only people we consulted with was not even the Afghan government, was the Taliban. The only people we consulted with. When we left, when we started to leave, not only did we leave before we evacuated our our civilians, which is obviously common sense says is catastrophic, but we left, we we abandoned Bagram Air Force Base first. Uh, As we abandoned Bagram Air Force Base, we left I'm told up to, and the number's been, uh, but up to $85 billion worth of equipment and technology and uh, classified uh, technology. Uh, we left that there. When the Taliban start moving, and I've been in these rooms before, you see them on this, the rooms full of satellite imagery. You can see the Taliban moving uh, 75,000 strong from Pakistan, from the, from the FADA area, the Federal Minister Tribal Area, as they would have seen this coming. Central Command, CENTCOM, said, hey, we need to resecure Bagram Air Force Base. One, to be able to have a secondary evacuation point to Ajkaya uh, Airport, uh, Airport in Kabul. And two, to be able to secure our equipment. Central Command uh, planned to jump the 82nd Airborne onto that ba- Bagram Air Force Base to recapture it. The White House had shot that down and turned it off. Uh, no one knows the reason behind that, but not only did we uh, cut off our secondary evacuation point, but we uh, left and abandoned all that equipment there. When you, you said several times there, Chad, about the international community, technically there's not an international community that every country has their own interests central sure, to their yeah. planning. So, so that's part of it. I, I get what you meant by that, but also doesn't this just bring up all of the kind of shady dealings with the Biden family 
in the, the country of China? Because again, we weren't allowed to talk about the Hunter Biden laptop and right. some of the things that were going on there. But again, before we get into the conspiracy theory stuff, because that's going to send us down a rabbit hole where we're both just going to end up pissed <laughs> off. Let's come back to to the stuff that you decided to do with it, because almost immediately, almost immediately after all this was falling and, and the world's trying to like catch up with the news cycle and figure out what exactly is going on there, you and some of your close buddies that many in our podcast audience will recognize decided that you weren't just going to sit on the sidelines. You were going to make something happen. And you started an organization, again, almost immediately called Save Our Allies. So yeah. I want to read the mission of Save Our Allies, and then I just want to tee it up to you to, to kind of give us the ideas to kind of how did this idea come to force, and then what did y'all end up doing? But from your website, the mission is, our mission is to rescue American citizens, permanent residents, SIV holders, and other special populations from conflict zones and contested areas. For those brought to the United States, we help them navigate the many challenges of being a refugee in order to form a successful and productive life here at home. So, why do that immediately as opposed to just doing what the rest of us did, which is just to look at our screen and lament what was happening? Well, I mean, for me, it was honestly, it sounds, I can make myself sound great, but it, it was very selfish. I did it. Those eight deployments I did at, on a JSOC task force, I had an interpreter named Disease. Uh, he started off as my interpreter. He became my teammate. Uh, and then he became a witting participant in all my operations. So really when I was running around Afghanistan, uh, supporting my JSOC operations, it was me and him. I did, I op- uh, went all across the, you know, the mountains of Afghanistan and into Pakistan with him. Uh, he saved my life three times, uh, tan- probably more than that, but tangibly three times. I've seen him do so many brave things for, for, uh, for American service members. And, uh, he's just an amazing human being. He's my friend. Uh, his family's close to me. I've been trying for six years to get him out on a special immigrant visa process which is only supposed to take nine months. Uh, and this American hero who's never been in America had never uh, got a fair shake through that process and I couldn't get him here. And, and so when I seen this news coming down, I'm like, man, I, I can't let my friend and his wife and six kids be killed because he would have been killed. He was already, as soon as the Taliban got there, he was already uh, being hunted by one of the Taliban members who we had a long story, but a Taliban member that we were affiliated with. So he was having to move house to house. And so I, I called uh, some of my friends um, that I worked in JSOC with. I called Tim Kennedy, who you and I both know. Mm-hmm. I know he's coming on your show soon. Uh, not because he's popular. Everybody knows Tim for being popular, but because he's an ASO level three uh, Green Beret sniper. He's, he's very uh, skilled uh, at specific skill sets that I was looking for. And I trust him. He's my friend. And uh, so I called uh, people I trusted, and I put together a team of about 12 guys. Um, I say, I, we put together a team about 12 guys and, um, and as we're planning to go get Aziz, his wife and his six kids, uh, we recognize that there were other people that need help too, particularly one of the team members, uh, who's also a green beret, but also worked for the, uh, CIA as a power military officer, uh, really trained in persistent rescue operations. He identified 3,500 orphans that were uh, going to be left there. And we said, man, if we're going to go get Aziz and his family, let's get these kids too. Then it kind of sparked to, hey, let's pause. If we're going to do this, how many people can we help? Let's, and so we decided to help as many Americans, interpreters, their families, vulnerable women and children, and uh, Christians that we persecuted. And uh, we, didn't, we, we had a very good plan of how we were going to do it. I mean, obviously, we bring a lot of experience to the table. But we, needed, we knew part of that plan was that we needed support that we were not going to get from the United States. We had some connections in the UAE, United Arab Emirates country, with the royal family there. We gave them a briefing, and they agreed to give us uh, some uh, incredible support. Two C-17 planes with pilots, uh, it, access to the humanitarian center to bring people to their humanitarian center, a place to set up our operations center. And uh, in, in addition to that, uh, I, I started that out of my foundation, Mighty Oaks Foundation, as a campaign called Save Our Allies, partnered with a lady named Sarah Verardo, who runs the Independence Fund, we came together to do this. She ran an operation center out of DC to start vetting the people we're trying to get out because we had to vet them and put them through joint chiefs uh, to make sure we're getting the right people out, unlike what was done, uh, the mass amounts the White House took out. And so this we, we went we went to Afghanistan under the permission of the DOD to land on HKIA Airport, HKIA, which is Hamid Karzai International Airport. Uh, we landed there with the permission of DOD, set up operations center in Abu Dhabi with the UAE. And uh, we were running all of our manifests through the Joint Chiefs to get approval. And so we would put uh, 
three-man teams outside the wire to go out and grab specific targeted groups of people and sneak them back in the airport, manifest them, and fly them to the humanitarian center in Abu Dhabi. That very first day, we got Aziz, his wife, and six kids, and about 183 people. The second day, about 800 people. The third day, about 1,000. And I can tell you, after that, it became a blur because no one was sleeping. Yeah. Everyone was just 24-7. And uh, we didn't know how much time we would have because we didn't know how long the military was going to control. The U.S. military was going to control the airport, um, which, by the way, I don't believe we ever controlled the airport. I could get into the NEO operation if you wanted to, the, the non-combatant evacuation operation if you want to. But uh, we we didn't know how much time we were going to have. But at the end of 10 days, that's when the military left. And we realized uh, – we kind of tallied it up and we had rescued about 12,000 people, um, You know, uh, uh, some amazing people that I got the privilege of working with. You know, Tim, Tim's just one of them, another name I can't mention, but sea spray and a guy named Sean just on the ground, just pulling people out every day. It was just an incredible 10 days. And then, but when that 10 days was over and we got those 12,000 people out, I think we knew too much and we knew we couldn't leave when the military left. And so we continued on our operations up to about 17,000 people. And, uh, and then there's another operation I can tell you about where we have no idea how many people we got out, uh, right. a, a second operation. Well, real quick before we get in, because I do want to hear about the non-combatant operation and get into that a little bit and the other operation that you alluded to. But for those that like like me, a civilian that doesn't really understand what y'all were able to do, because technically uh, most of you guys and most of the people on your team are civilians, um, were y'all authorized to be able to go hot if need be? If, if y'all got stuck as you're kind of sneaking people to the airport, if you got caught at a you know, caught by the Taliban or caught by some other group, ISIS-K, like, did y'all need authorization of any kind? Like, I, I didn't hear of any reports of, you know, rogue actors, uh, you know, in the streets of, uh, of Afghanistan kind of pulling people out and getting in firefights, but could y'all have done that? You know, uh, it, it's a really good question. I think as we select a team like this, you want to make sure you're putting people on the team that have got that out of their system. They're not wanting to go fight. I had hundreds of emails coming in from people like even with Ukraine and, and that, but Afghanistan as well. Like, Hey man, I want to go over there and get some. It's like, Hey, over the last 20 years, why are you wasn't getting out there getting some like, right. <laughs> you, you know, uh, I mean, we had plenty of opportunity to do that. This wasn't, the op- this wasn't the opportunity to do that. This was the opportunity to rescue people, uh, and try to avoid any conflict at all. So we were, our guys are very experienced professionals. I already had that other system. They were not looking to fight. Thankfully, Nothing, nothing happened with anyone. I don't know of any incident where anyone had to engage. Uh, I mean, there was some face-to-face confrontation uh, with some with some Taliban, uh, but I think they didn't want any trouble as much as any of our guys didn't want any trouble uh, because they just wanted Americans to leave. Uh, you know, now they were shooting people right in front of a right in front of you know everyone. They didn't care. Uh, they, but they were they were mainly targeting other Afghans. Uh, the Americans that I know that they were messing with were not Americans doing rescues. The Americans they were uh, messing with were people trying to get to the airport. They were taking their blue blue passports and beating them up and sending them back home. But that's the extent of what I've what I, I'm aware of. Okay, well, go ahead and get into that non-combatant operation that you were talking about a second ago. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people may have heard in the news, listening to neo operations with non-combatant, which means non-combatant evacuation operations. Which I think it's really important to know that this is a DOD function, Department of Defense function. When something bad happens in a part of the in any part of the world, the military is responsible to uh, rescue non-combatants from a combat environment, from a hostile environment. That's the United States military's uh, part of their role to do that. Uh, the State Department is a diplomatic organization. It's separate intentionally from the DOD, right? The DOD is like your strong arm. The State Department's your, you know, people that's going to have diplomatic negotiations and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, economic negotiations. Thing. So they're separated for reasons. The NEO operation never belongs to the, uh, to the State Department. The White House chose to take the NEO operation away from the DOD and give it to the State Department, putting the State Department in charge of this operation. Uh, horrible decision. Uh, I don't know if it's ever been made before. And uh, the result would be what we got. I mean, they treat it. The, the State Department treated the airport as if it was an embassy, meaning that we could defend anything inside the airport, but anything outside, we're not going to go out and do anything. So now our United States military became embassy guards for the airport. They weren't allowed to leave. They weren't allowed to defend themselves. If they seen an American fighting for their life just outside that, that airport perimeter, they were not allowed to engage or go out there and help them. 
uh, they've witnessed our, our U.S. service members witnessed Americans being turned away uh, by uh, being beaten by the Taliban. Our U.S. service members witnessed innocent Afghans being killed and decapitated right in front of that gate, and were not able to do anything about it. That was the result of the neo operation being given, uh, taken from the DOD by the White House and given to the State Department. Uh, you, other other countries like Britain and France were flying over the the gates of the airport to go get their people. We were not allowed to do that. Uh, I do know that some of our you know JSOC units went get specific people. Uh, uh, that that did happen. That, that came out. That did happen. Uh, but for the most part, evacuations were, uh, were were not happening once they secured the airport. With the new operation being run like that. People would say that we control the airport, but anybody with combat experience understands whoever controls the outer perimeter of somewhere controls that ground space inside of it. The, the State Department gave the Taliban control of the outer perimeter of the airport. They controlled who came in and out of that, that vicinity of the airport, which means we never controlled that airport. Uh, this is catastrophic of running a NEO operation because you're not controlling the non-combatants that you're trying to evacuate. The Taliban is. And uh, and, and they, were, they were asking for things like, more time or more access for for service for U.S. citizens. They're negotiating with a terrorist group, uh, and one of the things, kind of one on one with negotiations, you never give a date, a deadline. But the White House gave that date and deadline, and the Taliban just had to hold out and uh, and hold that out of perimeter until we left. And when we left, we had thousands of Americans still there. And I, I'm not exaggerating. Uh, the White House at that time said we had a hundred. Uh, that number has been contested. And even in the Senate hearing, the, the, the Blanken Senate hearing, that number was contested because just on the White House's math, that didn't add up. But even if the White House was right, that we only had 100, it doesn't matter. Uh, to me, the world I came from in military special operations is we don't leave one American behind. Even some right. idiot like Birdall who does something stupid, we will scorch the earth around that person to go rescue them. Uh, and use every bit of military might and strength to go get them. That's what Americans do. That's what gives them Americans that sense of freedom and peace to travel around the world. And uh, and we didn't do that. We ch- we told Americans we were going to leave them behind, and we did. And there are Americans still there today that are that you won't ever hear about because they don't have an outlet because they're inside of a closed, controlled Afghanistan by the Taliban that they'll never be able to reach out for help, and they don't know who's there because. You know, there's no way to know. And uh, Chad, it, it was unfathomable. Some of the things I was hearing out of the administration while all this was going on. But one of the common things I kept hearing, not just from the administration, from a lot of people in the media or blue check marks on Twitter, is how this is a different Taliban. Don't think of them as the guy in the man uh, in the man jams with AK-47 or chopping off the heads of people. Like these are sophisticated uh, people, and like we can negotiate with these people. But it's like I feel like we lost sight of the fact that no, these are our enemy. This is the same group that harbored Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. You know, during the whole 9/11 era, and it's seems like we've forgotten which side of the ball that they're on. They're not on the same side as us. They're, they don't have the same morality as what we're trying to do as a country. But I guess whenever you're going out to do these missions, kind of to go back a little bit to what y'all were doing on the ground with Save Our Allies, help me understand how you guys know who you're getting out. Because you know, we'll get into Ukraine here in just a second as well. Part of the concern, again, as, a, as an ignorant civilian, is you see these planefuls of people whether it's y'all's planefuls of people or Glenn Black's planefuls of people or the, the U.S. government's planefuls of people, and you're like, how in the world do we know who these people are? Did we just create a bunch of sleeper cells here, you know, stateside? Like, when you're going out there, how do you know who they are? How do you know where they are? How do you know you can get them out safely? Yeah, that's, one, it's a really good question and, and a, a very valid concern. And by the way, uh, when you talk about Glenn Beck's people, I, I want to thank Glenn Beck because Glenn, most a lot of the planes that we flew out, uh, were paid for by Glenn Beck and Mercury One, Rudy Atala, those guys. So a lot of our flights were the same people as Glenn Beck's people. We were, we were getting a lot of those planes were being paid for by him. Um, so uh, when when you see these mass groups getting on airplanes, this was the uh, part of that failed neo operation. Thousands of people flooding the gate. I mean, if you if you're in a survival situation, the strongest of the strongest of the strong are going to make it to the gate, right? Not the women, not the children. Right. When they let the the uh, when they opened the prison on Bagram Air Force Base, they said many of those people went straight to that gate at H Kaya, and people made it through. Uh, so that's who was making it to the gate. The U.S. military had to respond by direction of the White House and say, "Hey, we need to start evacuating people because that's what the public pressure wants." Right. So they're landing empty planes, and they need to fill those planes. The military cracked the gate. Whoever the strongest was would make it through the gate. 
They would go in this holding hangar that was supposed to fit about 15,000 people. People were dying in this hangar. Uh, they did a, they did no vetting of these people at all. They didn't even know who they were. And they would go in those planes and fly straight to the United States and go into our refugee centers in the United States on bases. And, uh, and then they can leave at any time they want. Zero vetting at all. Uh, upwards of, you know, I, I don't know the exact number. I think more like 80,000 people were flown out that way. Our process was much different and any other NGOs process was much different. We had to, we had to do several things. One, we had to have the people that were in t- attempting to rescue on a manifest. They had to have, uh, some type of, some type of documentation. Either it had to be a blue port, blue passport holder, a green passport holder, an SIV, which is a special immigrant visa applicant with a application number, a family member of, they have to, they had to have been a part of an orphanage or, or like vulnerable women that were in a, a vulnerable women group or from a church group. And then we would valid, we had a seven points of bona fides uh, that we would make sure that, that was actually the person we did outside the wire, not inside the airport, outside the wire. And I don't want to say what those seven points are because that's kind of goes in our means and methods of how we validate people, but we would validate that's who they are. And then we would, once we did that, then we would bring them into the airport and then they would go through a biometrics system and then they would get on a plane and that plane wouldn't fly them to the United States. It would fly them to a third party lily pad country where they go undergo a state department review. And some of them are, most of them are still undergoing that. I mean, Aziz has just got to the United States last week after eight months mm-hmm. of that in Abu Dhabi. So we're not the state department. We don't say if someone's a good guy or bad guy, we did everything we could to get them to that point, And then the state department and that lily pad country did that. So two very different groups. Uh, and I'm not bashing the DOD, uh, our brave men and women in uniform are doing what they were told to do. And they were did an impossible job there under the white house that put them in under impossible situations. However, those planes that the DOD flown out were unvetted people that came to the United States, and we should be concerned. We very much should be concerned. The planes that the NGO community have, have flown out of there, uh, are, are there bad guys in those? I don't know. I don't know why a bad guy would want to leave a brand new country that they were given. But if they did, uh, you know, they have to go through a State Department process, and that's right. the process we followed. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because we got a lot more ground to cover with Afghanistan and Ukraine. But one thing, and again, I, I tinge all of this through the lens of, hey, I'm an, I'm an ignorant civvy. There's sure, a lot of yeah. things that I don't know. And I think that's a good lesson for everybody. Express when you don't know something because then you give someone the opportunity to teach you. Whenever I was seeing these evacuation pictures of those men that you described that were obviously strong enough to push their way through and, and get on those planes, I was looking at a bunch of military-aged males who supposedly were people that weren't tally, that that they weren't, you know, they weren't bad guys as you just described them. And I'm wondering myself as as a as an Oklahoman, as a patriotic American, if that something like that were happening in this country, the amount of pushback, just me and my crew of guys, my personal foxhole here, that we would push back and try to fight against the tyranny that was befalling the country that I was in. And again, I don't want to be needlessly offensive or judgmental about a group of people because I was not on the other side of the gun. They were, right? Right. Why do you think personally we saw so many military age males that were just willing to, yep, I would like to volunteer for one of the first places on the plane. I'll go ahead and let the country of my forefathers burn. Yeah. I mean, one, I, th- I think we, uh, I'll say that we've seen the opposite of that in Ukraine right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, you get women, women staying there to fight. You get 200,000 Ukrainians went back to Ukraine to fight, left freedom to fight. Uh, but in Afghanistan, it's a little bit different, you know, and, and I'm not defending everybody's position there, but I will say this. One of the things that did bug me was when Biden, President Biden got on the, got, got on the microphone and said, you know, we can't help these people that won't fight for themselves. And that, that's just not true that they won't fight for themselves. Cause for 20 years, 60,000 Afghan, uh, Afghans died fighting for that country. Uh, they were, they were given support by us. They were given air support. They were totally equipped by us. And you had to imagine that they felt that they were completely, not only abandoned, but given away to the enemy. When you took away the air and gave the country to the Taliban, and I don't think, again, it's not defending them, but I don't think they knew how to react. And, uh, and 
you know, when, when you've seen some of the Afghan soldiers lay down their arms, you've seen some of them crying, begging not to give down their, give up their arms. Uh, it, it was just heartbreaking for me because I've seen, I, again, I don't know all of them, but I've seen so many Afghan warriors, such patriots for their country, fighting for their daughters to be able to go to school, willing to lay down their lives. I've seen Afghan, like literally you could be in a convoy and the Afghan vehicle is going to be first because they don't want U.S. service members to get killed first. Mm-hmm. They'll drive over an IED, the, the vehicle blows up, kills everyone in, and the next week, Afghans are going to be in that first vehicle again in a convoy. I mean, willing to die for Americans. And, uh, and you know, Aziz would never let me go around a corner first in the middle of the night uh, in a Taliban village or in the mountains, even though I had more military experience than him because I was his guest and he, didn't want, he wanted me to be safe. You know, that's the warrior spirit these guys had. But when you take over the air overnight, when you give that country to the Taliban without talking to them, I think it, it broke, it broke their will and they, and they, they panicked. Uh, uh, I mean, they, they didn't think, they didn't feel like they were fighting Taliban anymore. They felt right. like they were abandoned and given away. And, uh, I think some of that is what you see. Yeah. I think that's understandable. Again, I would encourage anybody that's still mad at the Afghans for not fighting again. You, you were sitting in your air conditioned house eating Cheetos whenever you made that statement. So it's always good to kind of remove ourselves and kind of try to put ourselves in their shoes before we move on to Ukraine. What is your understanding? It's not really understanding because you st- do still have boots on the ground there as to the current state of affairs in Afghanistan. Because I remember I've, I've got some friends that are, that are over that are, that are doing some things over there and um, some things are way worse than we expected. Some things are not nearly as bad as we expected, but what what is the current state of what's going on for the people of Afghanistan and kind of what do we see in the near future for them? Well, we, we do know that they're still hunting people down. They're searching houses. They're arresting people. They're executing people. Uh, they're not doing public executions from what I'm aware of. They're, uh, they're, they're dragging people off. Um, I'm getting a lot of stuff from people directly uh, in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, there's going to be no media because we gave them ability to cut any media out they have they control it's like north korea now like the vacuum no one knows it's a it's an information vacuum no one knows what's actually really going going on there how many americans are there what americans are facing uh how many you know of our interpreters what they're facing but we just hear their stories and uh uh you know it's it's very difficult now to evacuate someone from there because even as you get them out of afghanistan you have to have a you can't just get someone out of afghanistan you have to have a country legally bring someone to. Uh, you can't you can't uh, smuggle someone, an Afghan, into someone else's country. Mm. If I go grab an Afghan and bring him into to Pakistan, well, I'm illegally immigrating them into Pakistan, or I'm illegally bringing them to Abu Dhabi or to or America, right? So, so there's rules uh, to this, and so a lot of uh, it's really sad because I get emails and messages every day, like, please help me. My, my father was killed. It's, it's, uh, it's me and my sisters. We're going to, we're going to be killed. We're going to be raped. We're going to be married off. And, uh, without the, a country to be able to bring them to, uh, you can't help. And so the amount of help we're able to offer now is very limited. It's very tragic. It, it really breaks my heart that the world, not just America, I can be mad at our own country, but the world is allowing this to happen. You know, just a few years ago, the whole me too movement was such a a big thing, right? A hashtag, you know, hashtag me too, right? But now you have 20 million Afghan girls that were going to school months ago, educating themselves and, and, and embracing, you know, freedom. Uh, and now they're going to be sex slaves to the Taliban and, and the whole world sits silent and pretends it never happened and doesn't want to talk about it in the news. And the white house just wants it to go away as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the consensus across the world. No one wants to talk about it. And it's horrific. And then I'll go back to that word I started off with today. It's, it's disgusting. Well, no one wants to talk about it because it's horrific. And that's yeah. that's the thing that a lot of people is the news cycle moved on. So most people moved on. I think it was two weeks after all that. You know, I talked to a bunch of people that I've had on the show before veterans and they kind of gave me their very quick thoughts as to what was going on there. And then I did my own show where I kind of gave my quick thoughts. And I basically said, and I'm like, we're going to forget about this almost immediately because Trump's going to say something in an interview or Joe Biden's going to poop his pants on camera or something else is going to happen. And we're not going to think that we need to talk about this anymore. And part of that is, is seemingly happening with the country of Ukraine. So I'm going to read this from uh, the website and then we'll get into why you guys made a shift here. But SOA that's save our allies is involved in multi-pronged efforts in Ukraine and surrounding nations by one conducting on ground evacuations of non-combatants, children and elderly and disabled out of Ukraine and two 
forming a team of, of former soft providers, ER physicians, surgeons, nurse anesthetists, physician assistants, and medics to provide direct medical support to execution of theater medevac. So you guys didn't shift focus completely away from Afghanistan. You still have ongoing operations there. But as soon as all this stuff happened with Ukraine, you, you kind of sent things in that direction. And as you d- alluded to earlier, it's a much different uh, war zone, I guess you could say. It's a much different place. So take me through that. You, you guys saw another need happening in the world and you decided to move some of your some of your you know attention to that direction. So take me through that. Yeah, a totally different environment. Uh, you know, in, in between, we actually once we stopped being able to fly people out of Afghanistan, I'll say that we built, we went on a border, and myself and one other, uh, one other former special operations guy went in to a neighboring country and built routes out of Afghanistan, and so so people could actually move themselves out of Afghanistan. So I wanted to say that uh, we we did that about a ten day operation. We went on the ground and cross border and built routes out. And as, and as that was wrapping up, we were doing some uh, evacuations of about 200 girls uh, from Pakistan, and then uh, Ukraine kicked off. And uh, we ha- we put someone in the ground before the invasion. Uh, one of our team members, Sea uh, Spray, he's our ground force commander in, in Ukraine right now. He was in Ukraine when the invasion happened, uh, monitoring it. And uh, we we knew we had to. We knew you know we hey we have the people, we have the ability. We're stood up. Uh, we're, we're stood up already. We have the ability to help here. Uh, there are Americans there that are still trying to, to, to move out. They didn't think this would happen as fast as it did or, uh, or as West as it, as it, as quickly as it did. And so, uh, we started helping to get people out. Uh, as we watched it though, we seen that there were so many NGOs responded and there was the ability to get a bus and drive a bus across and open a door and let people get on the bus and drive across. So, you know, we're not going to do what everybody else can do. And that's not, being condescending to anyone else. It's like, let's do it. No one else can. I mean, that's what special operations does. We always do it when no one else can, what seems impossible. And so we started focusing on some really precision rescue operations. Some of our guys on our team come from intelligence community, intelligence agencies that have some specific skill sets and precision rescue operations, rescuing people that can't self-evacuate, uh, either they're like a high profile target or they're, uh, critically injured or they're just non-mobile, those type of people. Uh, so that's one of the things we focused on in Ukraine. Uh, we were able to move out 47 disabled people that had just been in a bomb shelter bomb shelter that was bombed. And uh, 100 disabled people were killed and the 47 survivors. We were able to be part of that rescue. Uh, we uh, Benjamin Hall, the Fox News reporter. Uh, if you guys seen the Fox News reporter, Benjamin Hall, that was uh, catastrophically wounded. I don't want to say specifically what his wounds were, but uh, we were called to go get him. Uh, when we got to him, he had hours to, you know, 48 hours to live and, uh, he was very wounded and, um, and we were able to get him out and went back. Uh, I went back a few days later and I actually drove, uh, Pierre, his cameraman's body out and drove his body to his, his wife to bear, to give her, you know, deliver his body with dignity to his wife. Uh, so those are types of rescue operations we're doing. We're also building, uh, infrastructure in place to sustain um, rescue and, and support operations should the cellular network and power go down. So uh, off-grid uh, communications packages uh, we're putting throughout the country. So kind of like a special operations mission that we're getting uh, getting set up throughout the country. And so we've been very successful with that operation as well as moving uh, medical support forward to very critical areas and, uh, and, and having medical mobility to be able to move wounded people, maybe not just out of the country, but to a safer place, uh, to play different hospitals and places in the country. And so that's the type of missions that we're, we're currently doing in Ukraine right now. And I just got back and I'm, I'm heading back in a few days. Yeah, I heard I heard that. I, I can't believe the the hours that you guys are putting in. It, guys, literally off air, as I was telling him about the interview, he was eating. He was like eating like in between things, like just trying to make sure you can keep fuel in the body. So it, it's it's impressive what you guys are doing. I'm curious for you, and this may be hard to answer because you're actually on the ground and your people are on the ground. But if you could pull yourself back a little bit, I want to get your opinion as to the world's response to what's going on here. Because yeah, you know, some people are like, oh, you're Russian, you can't compete in the the marathon or something like that. And it's like, okay, those things are kind of kitschy and kind of cute. We're punishing athletes that have nothing to do with what's actually happening. But I just heard a report literally this morning. This is going to be released. Literally, we're recording this the day before this is released of mass graves 
of the Russians kind of hiding uh, people in these mass graves. Hundreds, if not thousands of Ukrainians are being buried. That's not really being talked about. But, you know, there are some people that are very much so like send in everybody, send in the entire full force of the United States military, you know, enforce a no fly zone. All of our uh, other allies should do the exact same. And then there's other people that are like, dude, I don't want to send our 18, 19 and 20 year old young men to, to go fight and die for somebody else's country. We should defend Ukraine's borders, but not our own southern border. So I've seen a bunch of opinions and, you know, there are varying levels of being informed. So from your perspective, how do you feel about the international response to what's gone on here? And are there some misconceptions out there as well? Well, I mean, man, I could be hours on this. First of all, this should never have happened. And, uh, not a, not a Biden Trump thing, but, uh, President Biden made some catastrophic decisions in policy that, that allowed this to happen, um, mainly with the economic effects of, of uh, oil trade. I mean, uh, cutting off our pipeline, opening up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, taking sanctions off of that all allowed this to happen. I mean, we were, we were still buying 17 million barrels of oil a month uh, weeks into this thing right. going down. Uh, so so this, is, this is the – to me, this is the result of the United States – leadership and poor policy making. Uh, when I first, when this first kicked off, I would have told you 100% absolutely there's no way the United States military should get involved. I'm going to go as a citizen and go help people, not the Ukrainian government. I'm going to go help people that need help, uh, but there's no way the United States military should get involved. Young men and women in the United States military should never be killed doing this. Uh, I'll say from my position on the ground there uh, and what I've seen not heard on the news, but what I've seen with my own eyes, uh, my position has changed. Um, you cannot, I, I don't want the United States military going to war with Russia. I don't want uh, American men and women dying in a war like this. But this is not about America and Russia or anything. This is the world cannot allow a superpower to kill innocent women and children. No one wants America to go to war. No one wants World War III especially people like me that have seen war, but we cannot as a, as a civilization allow a world superpower to launch telephone pole size ballistic missiles in the neighborhoods that can't be allowed. And, uh, you know, I think there comes a point in a line where the world, not just America, but the world has to step up and say, no more, this isn't allowed. We don't care if you want Ukraine or if it's undisputed terror. This is not allowed. You cannot kill innocent civilians like this with as a world superpower. It's not okay. And uh, and I think that point has come. Uh, and and I think I don't think I'm not saying we in, invade tomorrow. Uh, and because I don't think Russia. I think when you talk about Russia athletes not being allowed to, ninety five percent of Russians do not support this. Hmm. This isn't a this isn't a war of the Russian people. This is a war of Vladimir, Vladimir Putin, who used to be, be looked at as calculated, but is now looked at as a madman, out of control, and will do anything uh, at all costs to take Ukraine. And he won't stop there. And we know at this point he won't because they already announced that they're going to go after Moldova. I think Moldova is how you say it next. Uh, and then you know if you go on the border in Krakow and Poland. The Polish people are terrified because they feel like they're going to be next. Yeah. Uh, so there has to be a line somewhere, and uh, and and I think it's time that the United States and the, and the world's allies put that line in the sand and then stick to it, or, or it's going to get worse. Wouldn't that be reasons. something? Yeah, if we drew a red line and actually stuck to it. And I yeah. I think just on last week's episode or an episode that I did, I talked about how I, I don't think that Vladimir Putin is crazy. I think he's still well calculated and that type of thing. I'm wondering if it's because he's been getting a bunch of wrong information. He's been having a bunch of generals tickle his ears for all this time. Yeah. And he thought he had capability that he doesn't actually have. And now he can't he can't lose face. He's got to save face somehow. So I uh, it's you know There's the truth to that. Yeah, the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah. But and I've heard you talk about this and you alluded to it a, a little bit a second ago, uh, and you've talked about this on other interviews. There is a grave concern about the overall corruption of the Ukrainian government, not the Ukrainian people. And you always delineate yeah. between the two very well. But I am concerned as an American taxpayer that pays a considerable amount in taxes. When my tax dollars every couple of weeks were, there's this new announcement of $800 million or a billion dollars or this many, this much that's going to be going over there so that they can help defend themselves. And 
you know, from a basic morality standpoint and defense standpoint, I want them to be able to do that. But then I'm like, how much of this yeah. money, just like it was in Afghanistan, is not being funneled to people fighting on the ground, but it's being funneled to people that are just lining their pockets and creating generational wealth for themselves. So help me understand how I should feel about that, because there, there's some dissonance there for me. Yeah, I mean, um, I've got asked this question a lot on, on social media. People are like, why are you out there helping in, in, in Ukraine? The, the uh, Zelensky is corrupt and the Ukrainian government's corrupt. Well, first of all, if we start from there, our government's corrupt and our president's corrupt. And, and every politician, <laughs> every politician that, that I've ever known since the beginning of pol- politics has been corrupt. And, uh, and, and when you talk about funding a war, I mean, the, the person that's profited the most of the 20 years of war in Afghanistan has been. U.S. politicians and U.S. lobbyists, right, and, and contractors. So there's always going to be that. Uh, you know, I'm not saying it's okay, and we should definitely, but to not make moral decisions based off of that fear is is not a good direction for us to go. I don't support the Ukrainian government. I don't support Zelensky. I think he's really charismatic and popular. He was a comedian. He's a spokesman. He's a, he's a charismatic guy. Uh, he says all the right things. It doesn't mean he's a good person. Uh, but that's not the whether we think Zelensky is corrupt or whether you think Ukrainian government is corrupt or not. It's not the decision that should be a, the, the deciding factor is if we protect humans, civilians that are being killed by a world superpower. Uh, and that's that's my position on it. Uh, and, I, and I think people need to start separating the two because I think one of the things that I've been hearing a lot, too, and you mentioned it earlier, is like, why should we be over there? defending Ukraine's borders when we're not defending our U S borders. Mm-hmm. It's like, can we do both? Like we shouldn't have to choose between right. like, like one or the other, right? We could do both. And, well, Jack, uh, we should be able to hold two disparate thoughts in our mind at one time because yeah. everything, because on Twitter, everything is zero sum. Everything right. is either black or white. It's binary, but the real life is not that way. We can focus on two fronts. We can That's fight right. a war on two fronts. Like everyone just kind of puts this thing through that, through that lens. Yeah. I guess to, to kind of put a bow on this Ukraine situation, because literally the reason why we're releasing this episode so soon after recording is because everything could change tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Your best guess. And don't worry that the world's going to be very, very cautious with you. If, if you turn out to be dumb down the road where do you see this going because some people are thinking that vladimir putin is crazy he's lost it eventually he's just going to launch a nuke and say f it i don't care anymore and then there's other people that say he's going to dig in and do whatever he has to do he's going to take troops from belarus and from other places and bring them in and he's just going to wait out the ukrainians because he knows he has more bullets he knows he has more people and then there's everybody giving different things in between. But from what you've seen on the ground and from your experience with warfare and, and international policy and whatever, where do you think this is going and how quickly are we going to get there? Well, usually I hope I'm wrong. Uh, and so I hope I'm wrong with this. Um, I don't see Russia backing out and I don't see Ukraine backing out. This is going to be a long drawn out uh, just fight that's going to cost it's going to continue to cost thousands and thousands of lives unless the world steps in. And then if the world steps in, then it's going to cost thousands of lives as well. Uh, unless, unless the line's put in the sand and Putin responds to that line in the sand. But I, I, I mean, I can't speak for Zawinski besides what he said publicly, which everybody's heard that he's not backing down. I'm not going to give an inch, not going to give up any land. But I was sitting in a, in a, I was in Chernobyl, Ukraine. I was in a basement of a safe house, kind of like, Felt like World War. Yeah. Felt like World War Two because like it's dark, gloomy, cold. Air sirens are going off, and uh, and I'm meeting with a pastor in the basement of a safe house of, from the underground church, and it's like, and 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 I'm I'm asking him the same question you're asking me. How's this going to end? And he's like, We're going to win. And I'm like, How? And he said, Well, they can't win unless they kill every single one of us. This is a pastor. He's like, They have to kill every one of us. We will not. not one Ukraine will give up. And uh, and you're talking about a. Uh, people where, like I said earlier, 200,000 Ukrainians from around the world have went back to fight. I drove across that border and I had a 30 year old woman who couldn't, wasn't allowed to walk across the border, asked me for a ride because she had went and dropped her kids off in Poland. And now she wanted to go back to fight with her son. I drove her across the border and dropped her off. She walked in 10 degree weather out into the woods because I was going the opposite direction. We dropped her off. She's going back to fight. These people are not going to give up. And the more, and the more dug in and resilient they will are to fight, the more that Russia is going to keep getting their butt kicked and they're going to have to escalate and escalate force. Mm. And they're going to have to bring in more people and more bullets. But I think, and, uh, and, um, uh, and they keep getting embarrassed. I think the reason they're getting embarrassed is their logistical train is what's like a paper tiger. Uh, we, we, 
I was surprised. I was like, man, when I'm watching their logistical train fail the way it has, it, it kind of made me a little, give me, gave me a little bit of confidence in America's military force and our capability in the world. Uh, but yeah, I just see it getting worse. Well, as you were talking through that chat, it made me, it reminded me of Vietnam to where at a certain point, the United States military realized they're going to make us kill all of them. And there was this, this unwillingness. And, and again, I'm, I'm bastardizing and painting with an incredibly no, broad brush. Right, that's, that's true. <laughs> but it's like, if it's the same thing more morally, we were unwilling to just eviscerate the entire country of Vietnam. And so we, we kind of licked our wounds and got out of there. When you talk to guys that were on the ground fighting over there, it's like, Hey, we, we got, we gave way more than we got, but they certainly got. But the same thing is true over here is we don't have any of this compunction that Vladimir Putin has that moral stance that he is right. unwilling to wipe Ukraine off the face of the planet. And so I am curious to see kind of where that goes into the future. You're right. Though. It's the same scenario as Vietnam, but Vladimir Putin's much different, and Russia's mentality is much different than ours was. So yeah, you're right. I hope you're wrong too. I hope you're wrong that this continues to escalate. Uh, I hope you you come off with egg on your face down the road and something <laughs> works out. But I, I got to say, I'm a very pessimistic guy, especially with stuff about this, and it's been worse than I ever could have imagined, even just paying attention the way that I have. But for, for save our allies, one thing that I'm curious about is so th there's a book that we have on our book list on our website, the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. It's called Left of Bang. I'm sure you're familiar with with a book yeah. like that. But Bang is whatever the thing is. So maybe that's when the active shooter takes his first shot when the bomb vest is exploded when the whatever happens that's bang and most people live right of bang right so something happens now i got to react to it a lot of people freeze up a lot of people make bad decisions just because they're living right of bang so from that perspective using that description save our allies has kind of been right of bang you know things go bad in afghanistan and then we react things go bad in ukraine and then we react do you see Save Our Allies into the future staying right of bang? Because to a degree, it's it's hard to know what part of the country is or what part of the world is going to completely devolve, you know, overnight. Nobody was expecting, you know, this time last year that Russia was going to invade Ukraine like this. Is that where y'all are going to play? Are y'all going to continue being right of bang? Is there a way to be left of bang? No, I, th I think, you know, we were, we were more left of bang than most other people for Afghanistan because of the fact that we were already, I was already working to get Aziz before the, before Afghanistan really kicked off. So we were like July, uh, but we were still, I would still consider it right of bang. And then, but Ukraine, we were a little bit further left because we already had a team in place and people and some infrastructure and a 51C3 set up. And so we're getting there. Uh, I hope honestly, like, I have no ambitions of, I run Mighty Oaks Foundation. That's the foundation I run to help wounded veter, uh, veterans of PTSD and on the spiritual side of uh, recovery and, and readiness. I wish that could go away. I wish there was no need for that. I wish I could shut it down. I really wish that Save Our Allies was something I could say that was that was fun while it lasted. Glad we were able to help a lot of people. We don't need it anymore. Uh, but unfortunately, that probably won't be the case. And so as we go to not only after Ukraine, but right now, currently, we're trying to be in a position to be more ready and more left of bang for the next one. Uh, and that's just, you know, recognizing where the world is right now, uh, how uh, unstable the world is, and how these organizations need to be set up and, and be prepared to respond quickly. Uh, and that's, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And I appreciate you bringing up Mighty Oaks because I did want to spend at least, at least just a little bit of time on that because I'm basically going to get rid of the last like third of the podcast that I was going to ask you about because asking you about, you know, what do you think about Mighty Mouse's chances in another Muay Thai fight doesn't seem to really resonate right now with, with the audience based on what we're talking about. Although I would like to talk a little jujitsu. We'll do that when things uh, settle down here down the road. But for our audience members that are not aware of Mighty Oaks Foundation, guys, don't worry. I'll have in the show notes here to where you can get all the information you need to and uh, know how you can support Save Our Allies and Mighty Oaks. But give our audience an idea of what Mighty Oaks is and kind of what you guys are working on right now, even with all this other stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, well, Mighty Oaks is uh, we're a faith-based veteran service organization. We stood up after I came home from aid deployments and dealt with a lot of things that many of our service members deal with. I dealt with anxiety, depression, PTSD, uh, attempt to take my life. Uh, and then, you know, through redemption of my faith and relationship with Christ, uh, I got better and, uh, and had a burden that God put on my heart to help others. And so 11 years ago, we started Mighty Oaks Foundation. In the last 11 years, I've been able to speak to 250,000 troops on active duty at bases around the world on resiliency, spiritual resiliency. I speak at places like 
Marine Corps boot camp and units uh, all over the all over the world. And then uh, giving away a, a bunch of our books, I've given away about 150,000 copies of my books. Um, we have a recovery program called a legacy program. Currently, we're doing about 35 camps a year. They're six days long. And it's a, a peer to, it's non-clinical, peer-to-peer, faith-based mentoring program that's followed on by lifelong aftercare. And so in, in the last 11 years, we've had 4,300 graduates, but we're doing about 1,000 per year now. And everything's for free. Uh, we even pay for the flights. People come in military orders from the veteran community, spouses, first responders. And again, we even pay for their travel. And then the third thing we do is we do a lot of advocacy stuff in Washington, D.C. I've worked on a lot of faith-based policy. Uh, President Trump had appointed me the chairman of the White House Faith-Based Coalition. We got executive order signed and did the prevents bill to bring faith programs back in the VA and DOD. And so we had a lot of tremendous success there. And then with, uh, I mean, Mighty Oaks was the foundation to start Save Our Allies. We we seen a need and uh, we had a 501c3 in place. We already did international programs. And so we launched uh, in, a, in partnership with Sarah DeBarado and Independence Fund, we launched Save Our Allies from Mighty Oaks. And so that's just some of the things that we do at Mighty Oaks. Incredible organization. We are currently relocating our headquarters to, to Texas. And uh, and uh, we have ranches all over the country, California, Ohio, Virginia, Texas, uh, and uh, Montana. <laughs> we did some of Montana last year. We have ranches that we bring to veterans too, or to all the, all the students too. You guys really do fantastic work. You know, to a degree, I wish we could have spent the last hour just talking about Mighty Oaks because of stuff that you're doing, but the other stuff seems so pertinent in our faces and there's a lot more bloodshed happening on that side of things. But we'll go ahead and end it here. And for any of you guys that thought I misspoke earlier saying that Mighty Mouse fought a Muay Thai fight, just like two weeks ago over in one championship, he fought Rod Tang in a mixed martial arts fight where like the second and fourth round were MMA and the first and third round was Muay Thai. So guys, I know my stuff. Stop trying to pretend like I don't know my stuff. All right, but let's kind of end it here. Give me, I want the Chad Robichaux State of the Union in terms of the United States, because there's no shortage of things to be outraged about if you're an American, whether it's the stuff that we've kind of talked about, how we're viewed on the international stage, whether it's Joe Biden somehow getting 81 million votes because it was obviously a completely fair uh, election that happened, you know, trying to figure out is Trump going to run? Is DeSantis going to run? Is Disney going to try to, you know, groom all of our kids? Like there's so many things in America right now that seem just absolutely insane. So I'm just going to turn it over to you. What are some things that you're worried about for this country? But also I know you're a very optimistic guy as opposed to me. What are some things that we can look forward to in terms of, yeah, hey, we are the United States. Things aren't as bad as they may seem. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll say with the 81 million votes, I was curious when I went in the airport the other morning, which is the first day I flew since since the masks were off. And I've seen yeah. about 99% of the people with their mask off when they could have had them on. And that made me realize they probably won 81 million votes. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Let's not go too far. I don't want to get this show canceled, all right? This is good stuff. So, so uh, yeah, I mean, um, look, sometimes... Americans on the left and right need to learn hard lessons. And I think over the last year, while many may not admit, they're learning some hard lessons on those who uh, hated President Trump, who are so radical, uh, who are so radically against conservatism. They're starting to learn some hard lessons, whether it be at the gas pumps, whether it be they're, they're, feeling, the, they're feeling the fear of national security, they don't feel safe anymore, or they're seeing things like Afghanistan and, and Ukraine and saying, Hey, I didn't like President Trump. His tweets were mean, but uh, I'm not okay with this happening in the world. In a world does feel like a more unstable and less safe place. I think what we're seeing is people being woken up to that. And I, I hate the word woke, but I think the word woke right now has actually had a, a 180 effect. And I think people are being woke the other way and realizing that uh, that this this far left uh, socialist movement that they were trying to drag our country to people were waking up and realizing this isn't a good thing. And, uh, and, and, uh, president Biden is not in charge of our country. Whoever is, is making terrible decisions and, uh, and it's costing, you know, lives around the world, uh, security around the world and, uh, and instability both economically and, and, and from our national security. So I think people are waking up to that and in just in timing, the midterms are coming. And, uh, I don't have a lot of faith in our election system. We've seen that in the last round, but I think they would have to cheat pretty, pretty obviously, to, to stop the midterms. And if we could win, when I say we, if the, uh, if America, free, free-loving free America could win the midterms, I think we have the ability to really turn this country around. Uh, I, I, it's terrible what's happened to this country in the last year, but I still believe in America. I believe in the people of America. Uh, and I think the loud 
the loud small few is not uh, is it doesn't is nothing to the, the silent majority, and the silent majority sort of wake up. And uh, I think we're going to see that in the midterms. I'm really optimistic for that. When I think the silent majority, so-called, uh, they're getting a lot louder now. And one thing that I'm enjoying seeing out of a lot of conservatives is conservatives used to be like, okay, push on me, push on me, push on me. That's fine. But I'm going to keep you at arm's distance and I'll push back a little bit. Now we're seeming to go on offense in a lot of ways. And we're pushing back in, in ways where the marketplace is recognizing. But again, the reminder to everybody's elections have consequences. Oh, you, you want to sit there and lament, but you didn't vote, right? You live in a swing state. You live in a purple state. You lament to the things that are going wrong on this planet. And yet you're, you're not voting or you're voting for candidates that are actively doing things against what you say you believe in. So again, we, we went everywhere in this conversation. I really appreciate your time, especially since you just got back. You're just about to leave again. I know this was hard, kind of squeezing the sin. So my audience is certainly going to be appreciative of it. But as for well, now, you. that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Nope. I say last closing thought with that is, as I'm not spiteful person, but maybe a little bit with this, I hope gas prices go up to $10 a gallon. Uh, so people feel it. I'll pay it just so people can feel it. So <laughs> People, people need to realize, uh, you know, the consequences of these things. The way we're headed right now, it would not be a shock to anybody. But Chad Robichaud, thank you so much for coming back on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks, man. God bless. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Chad Robichaud. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the links I've got for you today, I've got a link to the Save Our Allies website and also the Mighty Oaks Foundation website. And then I've got all of the different social media platforms for Chad. So the Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, so you can keep up with everything he's got going on. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on on your podcast, just send me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Bread for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, Keep pushing back darkness. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.